thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. This is Up for a Chat with Cindy O'Mara, Karen Smith, and Kim Morrison. Here we are, Up for a Chat about the hottest topics that are important to you, inspiring you to awaken the change within. I'm Karen Smith. I'm Kim Morrison. And I'm Cindy O'Meara. And welcome to today's podcast. We've got a really, really interesting topic for you today because we've actually just completed our weekend retreat called Awaken the Change, funnily enough. (laughs) And something came up which... um, I guess was it, it's a very fascinating look and fascinating take on why we eat. And I have been doing some research probably over the last three months on something very similar because I've, I've really had to have a really good look at myself in terms of why I eat and how come I seem to struggle and Kim and Cindy do it so easy. <laughs> <laughs> but what I, we want to talk about today is what's the difference between somebody who eats for emotional reasons versus somebody who eats for fuel. And I had a conversation with a friend of mine in Sydney a couple of weeks ago where we were throwing this around, and I'm an emotional eater, always have been. So I don't just eat when I'm sad. I eat for all emotions. So if I want to reward myself, I'll eat. If I want to punish myself, I'll eat. If I want to, if I'm sad, I'll eat. If I'm bored, I'll eat. (laughs) If I'm angry, I'll eat. If I'm excited, I'll eat. Because everything is a celebration and I eat for fun. And sadness. And yes. The whole lot. Everything. The whole gamut. Absolutely. Every single emotion is a license to eat. (laughs) So when a person's like geared that way, there's a big contrast between somebody who understands that their body just requires fuel, therefore eat for fuel. So we thought that was a really good topic to chat about today because we're in the room with two fuel eaters and one fun eater. (laughs) (laughs) And we know that there's a lot of people out there who have different reasons for eating. And we, it was it was even it was evidenced on the weekend when we did the when we did the retreat, people who do the yo-yo dieting, people who do the um, who've been dieting all their lives and have just continued to add more weight. Highly likely, it's highly highly likely that those are our emotional eaters. So why don't we just throw it open and see what you girls have got to say? Like, what do you think the difference is? Why do you guys eat? You know, if I'm not hungry, I don't think about food. Food's not in my mind all the time. It's, it is something, uh, I get up in the, I love eating by the way, you know, and I know oh. Kim does. Mm. We, and we love cooking and we love, we love having a social spread and we love having people around for dinner. So we enjoy that. But let's say I'll get up in the morning and I'll prepare a beautiful breakfast and it could be some scrambled eggs and some pesto and some tomato relish and some, um, I'll have some watercress or some spinach and some halloumi. And so these are the types of foods I love to eat. Or I might, like this morning, my daughter got up and made me cater. So I had cater and, and a chai tea. So it, 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 it's like I love the food, but I'll only eat because I have to eat. I have to eat in the morning because I know that if I don't eat in the morning, I'll be hungry by 12 o'clock. And if I haven't taken my lunch, then I'm going to be really upset, you know. But what I do is I do prepare my lunch. And so when it comes to lunchtime and I'm working and I'm busy and if I'm not hungry, I'll just keep going. I, I probably don't get hungry till about two o'clock and then I'll go, oh great, I'll have my, my dinner now, I'll eat because I'm hungry. But if I go home and I'm not 
wanting to eat or anything like that, I may not even have dinner. So it's, it's, it is based on the responses my body is giving me. Mm. That's number one. It's based on the responses my body is giving me. It's saying, you're hungry, you need to eat, do something about it, fuel, your, fuel yourself with good food. And because I have that knowledge, I fuel myself with good food. And I notice that uh, when people go on the, um, the protocols and go on the hunter-gatherer and they have to stay on a strict regime, they seem to be able to stay on that strict regime really well and they know what to do and they know what they've got to do and they get everything right and then they sabotage mm, mm. and they eat because they're, hung, they're, they're not hungry so much but they're happy or they're sad or they're um, excited or they're in love or they're not in love or they're angry or, yeah. you know, and then they yeah. go to that. So what I've been doing is thinking back and I believe I was an emotional leader. So it has to be something you can break. So if I was an emotional leader and I'm now a fuel leader, then there has to be a way of breaking it. And I'm, I'm trying to think about what I did. And so, you know, when I was in my 20s, I was at university and I remember putting on quite a lot of weight and I could eat 12 chocolate chip cookies in a sitting or, you know, 10 wheat bix or five or six pieces of bread with butter and honey. And so, and I would do that if I was sad or happy or, or anything like that. And the way I, I broke it is, is number one, as I started to realize that this is the only body I've got and I don't like feeling like crap. And that made me feel like crap when I ate those bad foods. And so mine was a a thing where I was able to just go, well, I don't want to feel like this anymore. And and that was the way I ended up breaking it, is I don't want to feel like that anymore. And I think I got more of a respect for my body um, as another thing. Plus, I found new things to do when I wasn't happy or happy or whatever I wanted to do. I, I would find new things in order to do it. So I, I guess it's about, number one, making a very, very conscious decision that, that you are going to make the change, having a bit of respect for your body, but also um, creating new habits. So what I did was I wrote up on my fridge things that, I, I, that made me feel good if I needed to feel good. And I was probably more not a happy eater, but a, a sad eater. I probably ate for those reasons. So there were things like going for a walk, having a bath um, with some oils in it. Um, look, I can't even remember. I remember I had a list because this was back in my 20s that I did this. But what concerns me is that when people do the protocols and then they do so well on them. Like, you know, they lose the weight, they're feeling fantastic, they've never felt so good in their lives, and then they go back to hankering for sugars and eating for emotion. Mm. So I believe if we kind of start to explore some of the things that um, maybe we'll be able to help people get out of being an emotional eater and become a fuel eater, mm. then we've given people the strategies in order to make these changes if that's where they are. Mm. But just so they know, you can go from an emotional eater to a fuel eater. You don't have to be there all your life. It is possible to change. Mm. Kim, did you ever eat for emotion? Well, I don't know if I've ever admitted this to you girls. Oh. Hmm. I actually, She's looking very serious, isn't well, she? Yeah. Well, when I was a teenager... I had a boyfriend at a fairly young age. Touch. <laughs> Touch. Notice I allowed the pause. Oh, she knew it was coming. Um, but I was with this boy from the age of 14 through to 19, and he was gorgeous. First boyfriend, just a beautiful... I'm very blessed that I had a, a very good first boyfriend. And, and I remember one day he said... I looked a bit fat. I don't remember where or how, but maybe we'd had our bathers on or something like that and we were going to the beach and 
and I was quite a fit person anyway. So whether it was a throwaway line or whether I actually was, I can't remember. But I do remember throwing up, you know, making myself throw up after every meal. And I started doing that for a while when I was a teenager. Um, And I guess that is bulimia. Um, And particularly I would throw up if I had something bad. So I would make myself sick if we had a dessert because I really wanted it. It looked really nice and I craved something sweet. I'd eat it, but then whenever I'd gone, or I'd get up from the dinner table and go to the bathroom and throw up so I could sit there the rest of the time. And it's just sort of hit me then. I've never thought I was an emotional eater, but clearly there was a lot of stuff happening there. And I guess when it really broke was at 1920 when I started studying the human body and and started doing my diplomas and and researching what nutrition was about and realising at the same time I was running for Australia that I started to become more educated about what eating was about. And, you know, I do know with people around me, family and friends that have eaten um, emotionally, it's either boredom or stress or sometimes they overeat because they're happy. Like I watch how much people eat when we sometimes go out for dinner and I'll have an entree at main, a dessert, and then cheese, and then wine, and it blows me away how much we overeat. I know that we eat when we get sad, some people, but I, I must admit I am a type that when I'm sad or upset, my, everything shuts down with me and I don't want to eat. I, I actually don't want to go near food. So if, if I have the opposite effect when I get stressed is I actually get underweight and I lose weight very quickly. So I don't know whether that has anything to do with it. But just thinking back to the times when I was throwing up and where did it change, I think for me the key was education and understanding that my body was actually a vehicle for, for, for greatness and to get me through. And probably because I was representing Australia at 21 years of age running, I actually got to really be educated through the Victorian Institute of Sport about what eating was all about. And for me, I learned there that it was a fuel. So the best fuels to make me run longer were proteins and very um, complex carbohydrates. And, you know, and then I tell you, the other thing that really gave me a lesson on food. So just fast forward a little bit and my whole life started getting busy and married and looked amazing when I got married. And not I wasn't one of those brides that dieted before she got married. I just was fit and healthy, thankfully. I had a husband that was an international sportsman, so nutrition was very big for him. I knew for us to earn money, his body had to be at its best. So I probably approached mm. food very... Um, clinically almost, you know, what's the best food that's going to make his body repair and heal and work. But then we had babies. Danny had quit international cricket. I was now, and I did get into that little thing of, well, I'm eating for two, you know, and and I kind of went with my cravings, and particularly with Jacob. I had, dare I admit it, um, but I craved Magnum ice cream. And I reckon I ate more Magnum ice creams in that pregnancy than I've ever eaten in my entire life. But boy, when I'd had him, I'd put on quite a few kilos. So I was about eight kilos over my normal weight, and that's when it hit me. I had now got into a problem with food or problem with my look or my my health. And I took on a program. So again, I got educated. I saw Actually, I saw a picture, a before and after picture, and I decided I'd like to know what it would like to be an after photo, and I didn't want to be in my bathers anymore. I didn't want to be seen in my bathers. So I um, took on the 12-week program, and a lady at the gym noticed my commitment, and she came up to me and she said, 
you've been doing so well. Did you know that there's a body sculpting competition in a few weeks, in seven weeks' time, and I reckon you could do it. And that was one of those comfort zone, hideous moments where the brain's going, no, 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 and the heart's going, why not, why not, why not? And I decided to take her up on it because I knew in order to get me over the line, I probably needed help. And maybe that's another thing that I would suggest as a really good pointer for a strategy that sometimes we don't know what's best. We think we do and then we sabotage or we do something or we've heard on an advertisement that that's okay to eat this sort of food and we kind of give ourselves permission or we make an excuse for it. So for me, having a coach for seven weeks, the other thing I learned in that coaching session was that my idea of a 10 when it came to exercise was actually with her a six. So I reckon I realise I'm a wuss with myself and I reckon I'm a wuss when it comes to eating. You know, like that's where I think we sabotage because we're not firm enough with ourselves. We're not being a coach to ourselves. We're not letting our inner voice coach us through that. We're giving into it and we're trying to be in charge of it. So there I was seven weeks later, and you both know I stood on stage in front of, you know, four or 500 people in a G-string bikini posing. Tart. <laughs> Brown skin. Yeah. Muscles going everywhere. Tart. Didn't even look like you. But I tell you what yeah, it, Your whole body no, was amazing. But I tell yeah. you what it taught me, I, and this was a big aha for me around eating. One, one night before my training session, we'd had people over for dinner. I had my grilled, my sorry, my boiled chicken and my steamed broccoli and and my half a baked pot- sweet potato. That was my dinner, and they were all eating all of their similar food, but it was baked and sauces and, you know, baked and roasted potatoes. And they'd all give me grief. Oh, go on, have a little bit. And that's an interesting thing when you're on a mm. protocol and everyone else yes, isn't. Yes, Is people going, oh, for goodness sake, and they actually get a bit intimidated by you being quite strict because it also brings up perhaps for them their own inadequacies to be that strict and reg- regimented. So I gave in that night, and I actually had some dessert, which was only out of Dr. Sandra Cabot's liver cleansing diet. So it was her liver cleansing banana cake. So it wasn't a bad cake by any means. But the next morning, I went to training, and Rachel, my trainer, did the fat test with the, what do you call it, the pincher things. And the she lift, calipers? The calipers, things, yeah. Mm. She lifted up my top and took my skin thing, and she goes, what did you eat last night? And I went, nothing, nothing, nothing. And she goes, Kim, what have you eaten? And she goes, you've had sugar. And I went, what? <sighs> and she goes... And then I went, and I justified it, but it was only a liver-cleansing banana cake. And she goes, you still had sugar. And that was one of the biggest ahas of my life, that everything that goes into my mouth is actually experienced in the body. Mm. And that would have been inflammation. It was. There's no way that was fat, but no. you would have just swelled up with water. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and sugar does that. And that was an aha for me. Mm. That even, and then she told me, don't even eat chewing gum, because chewing gum was something I got into a habit of so that I wouldn't want to eat. And then I realized the ingredients of chewing gum. So I tried to get as natural one as I could, but it was still had xylitol and things like that in it. So I'd eat chewing gum. And then she even said leading up to the competition, I want you to drop all chewing gum. You're not to have anything. And that's when I started to understand that everything we put in these lips mm-hmm. has an effect physically on the body. So to do something like I'm not suggesting everybody should go out and do a body sculpting competition, but what it taught me was... If you really want to be lean and taut and tight, then you've got to be strict with what you're eating. And then the standard Australian, New Zealand, Kiwi, Western diet is not a normal diet. And therefore, and that changed my whole way around, around thinking. Yeah. So if I was to sum up with what you believe changed your um, aspect of, you know, probably being a bit of an emotional eater with a bit of bulimia sitting in there, mm. it would be 
um, respect for your body in order to do what you needed to do, education, yeah. and a coach. You had I a really coach. Did take yeah. on a coach that made me accountable. Accountable, yeah. Mm. So, yeah, I, 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 think they're like that. I think they're really, really important things that we need to do. But there's, there's got to be more to it, Karen. There's got to be more to what's happening in the brain because some people, you know, they do my programs and and well, they know what to do. They've got a coach. They're being educated as long as they're reading the stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying to teach them to respect this body that we only get one of. But what what clicks them over the edge that they know they shouldn't be doing it and then they go and do it? Because the problem's not the food. The problem's not the food. The problem with an emotional eater is the emotion. And the problem with the emotion is mindset and its experience and its past and its childhood and its history and its it's all of the... Um, all of the mental components that come together that make the person who they are. So while we're addressing the food for fuel eaters, it's it's a great thing. But for an emotional eater, the food isn't the problem. The food's just the end result. A classic example, and I'm, I'm just going to use myself as, a, as, as an example here. When I was a kid growing up, I... You know, I had, I'm the youngest of three. So in the pecking order, I was always last. <laughs> my sister, um, you know, my sister's always been, my, my dad always used to say to my sister, and he said it to me once, um, you don't need a fiancé, you need a financier. Because we've always been very high maintenance. We've always been very expensive children. <laughs> So, you know, we were only just talking about this a couple of days ago, that we had our first lobster when we were three. I tasted lobster when I was three. Lush. I oh know. God. And you yeah. wonder why I'm such Princess. a... You wonder why I'm such a brat. My slippers had heels on them with big fluffy puffs when I was four. And... Oh, that's cute. I know. I was one of those. I was one of those. And it wasn't because we were loaded. We just weren't. I just had a mum who used to love to play with us. And my dad used to love to play with us. He used to love to see us come dressed up in our fluffy puffs and our ballet shoes. And we used to put on little concerts and stuff, you know. So for us kids growing up, life was always a very decadent experience with my parents. So they and they always wanted us to experience everything from beginning to end. So we'd go to these expensive restaurants, and my parents could always trust us, and we knew to be well behaved because there was lobster in in tow. (laughs) So we would always sit very well behaved, and my mum always wanted us to have the lobster. I'm sure it used to just. I don't know. I never saw it. But I'm, now that I'm older, I'm looking back thinking, geez, if my dad had to furnish lobster for five of us in a restaurant, then he, you know, he must have been working his buns off just oh, to support our eating habits. Like it's $75 or something for a lobster these yeah. days. But you know what? I don't think it was back then because my mum had, we had lobster. Right. Um, and I can't imagine them spending. Yeah. Well, we'd go to we'd go to fabulous restaurants, and it's a oh, stunning gosh. restaurant called the Benelong. <laughs> in Sydney, too, in Sydney, right? In yeah, the Opera yeah. House. <laughs> it was the Benelong at the it's Opera House. Making sense. Everything is yeah, making it does, sense. It does, doesn't it? All mm-hmm. coming together now mm-hmm. about her. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we'd go to these fabulous restaurants because my mum loved fabulous things. So we learnt about fabulousnessity <laughs> when we were kids. <laughs> But then in the home, um, you know, my brother was incredibly active and he's the middle 
child, incredibly active. He's so fit and, you know, he's one of the world's, if, you know, I mean, he's just exceptional at, at, at sport and brilliant at squash and, you know, you want to see the muscles on this. Anyway, so he was growing up really fast and very, very fit, very, very active. So when my mum used to come home with the groceries, he'd hoover through the whole kitchen and he'd just literally suck it all in in one day. So I used to hide food. I used to stand hovering over the gu- over the um, shopping bags and I'd be first in grabbing some food and then I'd go and hide it in my undies drawer just so that I had food. Because Now we know where to find the food, don't we, oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. But then as I got older, what I started to realise was that I was actually getting really fat because I was putting on... I, I, was, hov- I was hoovering in as much as I could get just so you get something just, well yeah, yeah. stop him yeah, but then i also had the you know the nasty little sister thing you know i was like oh i'll have this and then he won't be able to have any <laughs> so wasn't that awful so i'd stand at the fridge and i'd glug 600 ml bottle of milk three times a day so i would just inhale all of the milk because i love the milks but i'd drink it straight out the bottles so that nobody else could have any isn't that bad and then all the snakes and all the chocolates and all the chips and all of that sort of stuff, I would just hoover as much as I could. So I became an overeater. By the time I was eight, I was an overeater. So my question is, mm. if you didn't have a brother and a sister mm. and the food was available to you all the time and you didn't have to fight for the food... Well, I didn't actually me... have to fight for it, though. I didn't oh. have to fight for it. That was what was going on between my two ears. That wasn't ah, the reality. Right. Mm. That wasn't the reality. That was your reality. That was just my reality. So it, it, is the reality you put on a situation and made meaning to it? Correct. Does this sound like Karen Smith? Or the reality was <laughs> she just didn't want anyone else to have as much as she wanted. <laughs> correct. Yeah, she wanted to, correct. And she didn't want anyone else to enjoy it the way. She selfish. Selfish is what Totes, 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 mm. deaths, let's just say yes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It was my own reality that I created. So by the time that I was eight, I was already an overeater and I was fat. And then I went to school and I used to get called fat. I was never picked on through primary school, but by the time I got to high school, I decided that I needed to lose the weight because I looked at all of the other girls and all the other girls at school were thin. So I used to vomit. So I used to vomit all the time. I used to vomit every morning. I used to vomit at lunchtime. I used to vomit at dinner time. I used to vomit all the time. So I'm very good at vomiting with my fingers down my throat. Easy peasy. But then what I would do is, um, then I got a boyfriend when I was in year 10, I got my first boyfriend and I just always wanted to look amazing for him. So I would eat three days, starve for four, eat for three, starve for four. And that was my pattern for about six or seven years. So you just started in a pattern. I did because I just, because I knew that I was fat and even when I was thin, 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 48 kilos, even when I was thin, 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 I still saw massive in the mirror. When I looked in the mirror and I put my jeans on, I saw massive. And it was, it was abhorrent to me. I couldn't stand it. And then as I started to get a little bit older into my early 20s and started to become a little bit more feminine, you know how you get the boobs and you get the bum and the, and the waistline, I couldn't stand it. I couldn't bear it. But what, that, what I did there was I realised that I'd been working so hard with this starving thing and I'd become so habituated with it that what I thought in my mind was none of that's actually working. Stuff it. I'm just going to eat. Stuff it. Everything I've done all my life hasn't worked. Stuff it. I'm just going to eat. 
So because I started to get really, um, I wasn't depressed, it wasn't a depression, but I felt a, a sensation of depression around my eating and weight. I thought, well, stuff it. If I'm not going to, if, if, if I can't lose weight, I'm just naturally a fat person, just eat. And then I would eat and I would see myself putting on weight and then that would make me so upset with myself that I'd go and eat again because it would be like, stuff it. You're so fat. Just go and eat something else. And while I was eating, I'd say to myself, yeah, go on, shovel it in. Go on, have more, you fat pig. Go on, do it. Go on. So I would beat myself up while I was eating and I had no idea how to eat. So I would, I would get steak. I remember this, you know, and my poor brother was living with me at the time and I would cook dinner and I made steak and then I put a little little smattering of, of strawberry jam over the top of the steak and then I cooked it. So it had this beautiful sweet glaze to it. So the first time I did it, I used a tiny bit and the second time I used it, I used half the jar because I thought, <laughs> oh, well, if the first one was nice, this will be even yummier. And I just had myself in this habituated way of eating where sugar was my... It was my drug. It was my drug of choice. So I loved my chocolate. I loved everything that was sweet because it made me feel good when really I felt crap. Sugar gave me a sense of I feel better because inherently I felt terrible. And each time I ate, it made me feel better, but ultimately it really didn't mm -hmm. because it made me put on the weight. And then as the years went on, you know, I rode, rode a roller coaster and I did the Fit for Life. I did Weight Watchers a thousand times. I did Jenny Craig a thousand times. I did every diet that came out into the market, the soup diets, all that sort of stuff. I did all of those diets and rode the roller coaster. Can, can I just stop you there for a minute? Yeah. Is that because you knew no better? Correct. Right. Uh, well, because that's, yeah. That's absolutely. what you only knew was to do that's those types of diets. Yeah, that's yeah. all that and I was knew. was that what you used as a methodology to get back on track? Was that your... Well, that was just to lose weight. But then if I lost weight, I'd be, cool, I've lost the weight. Now I can eat. Oh, wow. So then I would eat. And then I would go, oh, jeez, I've put the weight back on again. What's the next diet that's out there? Oh, the lemon detox. Cool, let's do the lemon detox. And then I would lose a little bit of weight and then I would eat. Because inherently the problem was never the food. The problem was always what was sitting underneath the food, which was the emotional eating. And because, you know, I have had a massive career and I've always been very career-oriented, I'm busy all the time. So I would always just reach for whatever was convenient, whatever was quick and easy, but then beat myself up about what I reached for. But I would never have reached for something that was a salad. I would never have. I would never have gone for a salad because it made my body feel better. I never would have ever even contemplated that. Only during the diet times I would think about that. But if I wasn't, you know, in a diet, it would never occur to me because all my body wanted was breads, pies, sausage rolls, sugars, starches, and carbohydrates. That's all that my body was. That's all that I wanted because it was those that made me feel like I was full. But the other, you know, the other contributing factor to that was because I was so busy, each time I would eat, I would eat unconsciously. I would have an emotional response to something, go and grab a big bag of chips, and then I'd get stuck back into work, and then I would polish off two or three big bags of chips. 
and then I would have a massive, 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 because they stopped making milk in bottles, so then I'd have a massive, massive, massive glass of milk. And then I would go and have a coffee on top of that, a soy latte. So I'd go and have a soy latte on top of that, and by then I would be full, satisfied, and then I could get on with my day until the next situation occurred where I'd be stressed. Somebody would ring in sick, I was the manager, that would give me stress, so then I'd reach for something to eat to mm. calm myself. Mm. So it just became a way of being. It just became a habituated way of being. And I have to say to you, had I not studied from a psychological perspective, had I not invested so much research into that, I wouldn't have known any different even to this day. And had I not met you guys, obviously, I wouldn't have known any different to this day. I had a conversation with um, two girlfriends a couple of weeks ago about this very thing right in the middle of some of the strategic research that I was doing. And both of those girls... um, have you know quite heavy and have been very heavy in the past and same same they've ridden the emotional roller coaster and one of them actually said to me she said she doesn't eat because she's sad she eats because she's happy she thinks food is a reward and um she just wants gourmet all the time she won't settle for anything less than gourmet food and gourmet foods are creamy beautiful sauces and wonderful cakes and pastries and you know, that to her is what's gourmet. So she will not settle for anything unless it's gourmet because it's a reward for the hard work she's done. Whereas another one of the girls suggested that she eats because there's nothing else to do that is as fun. There's nothing else that is as fun. And it's just a really amazing, it's just, it's amazing to look at how the mind sees these things. So the problem's not the food. Then there was another girlfriend of mine who I spoke to who um, has been pushing 140 kilos and she's been like that for most of her life and she's the classic one where she doesn't care. So for her, her priority is her children. Before, her priority was her work. So she doesn't care and if people don't love her for who she is then she gets rid of them out of her life because she doesn't care from her perspective she's happy she thinks she's got a great life she's got a couple of amazing kids and she doesn't care what people think of her she'll eat what she wants when she wants how she wants it no one gets to have any input but deep down I wonder if she does care. Well, like I, I'm, I find it really hard when people say, "I, you know, I do care." Like, for instance, Magnus Svansky. I, I just love her as a comedian. Yeah, yeah. And she always said, "I don't care." And then she went on. Was it Jenny Craig? Jenny Craig. She went on. And she lost weight. And she and she was on the front cover saying how wonderful she felt. And, of course she cares. And of course she cares. And then she gained all the weight back. And I and I went. Actually, you do care. Of course. Otherwise, you would never have done that. Never done the diet. And, and, you know, did she do the diet because she wanted health or did she do the diet because she wanted to look better? Or um, I I think we have it all screwed around. I think we have it all us about. I I actually believe that everybody goes on a diet to lose weight, so they don't care what they're eating as long as they lose weight, Mm -hmm. rather than going on a diet to get healthy Mm. and the weight will fall off. Mm. So all you can do is eat healthy foods, you know, the real foods. So when you're younger, when you're younger, I didn't ever go on a diet to be healthy. I've only been on a diet to be healthy two years ago. Prior to that, I only ever went on a diet to lose weight. I only ever went on a diet to lose weight because I was overweight. I, only two years ago did I decide that health was my priority. And do you know even that, Cindy, even that was a big shift for me 
because I had to stop being concerned about the fact that I was in a size 12 jeans. I had to stop worrying that my butt looked big in everything in order to go on a diet for health. So I had to create I had to go for a massive leap of faith that I would lose that weight because inherently it was the weight that bothered me because I, as far as I was concerned I was healthy fit and well like I could do anything I wanted to I was never sick. So I was fine. Mm. So to get from I'm going on a diet to lose weight, I'm going on a diet to lose, or, or I'm going to change my eating, it's not a diet, I'm going to change my eating and my lifestyle for health, was, it was challenging, and if I didn't have you, I honestly, I don't know, I honestly don't know, and yeah, I, I, so education I is know. definitely one of the most important things, for but sure, one of the things for sure. you said was that you know, you grabbed for the donuts or what was it? You always, everything you talked about when you grabbed, you didn't ever grab a salad. You always grabbed for things with high, carb- with high carbohydrates yeah. and it was wheat Stash. because I, I was writing everything down um, about what I wanted, wanted to say as you were saying mm. because I'm going, oh, my gosh, she's grabbing for the wheat product. Yes, it had sugar in it and, and it was tasty and everything, but it was all wheat. And it was addictive. It, it, it is addictive. This mm. is the thing is that we now know that um, with the wheat grain and it's the new wheat grain we're talking talking about so we've done a whole podcast on on wheat and what they've done to our wheat we we now know that the gluten of the wheat grain breaks down into three components when you digest it one of the components is um, glutenin the other one is gliadin which causes the autoimmune diseases such as celiacs etc but there's a third component that breaks down to something called glutenomorphin. And glutenomorphin is absorbed past the blood-brain barrier, straight into the brain, and acts like morphine. So basically, at, um, let's say morning in, in the morning, what would you have for breakfast? Did you have wheat bix that breakfast cereals? Oh, my goodness. I used to love wheat bix with tons of sugar yeah. and hot milk. So you'd have that, that wheat bix. So an hour and a half later, you'd be probably hungry and you'd need to go Absolutely. for something else. Absolutely. So what the glutenomorphin does is it goes into the brain. It acts like morphine. And um, anybody knows who's ever done drugs, they get the munchies. Mm. And so it creates a munchie. But it not only does that, but it creates an addiction because you become addicted to morphine. Mm. So you're constantly looking for your next fix. Mm. And when people get that and know never to go back to wheat once they have gone off it, and that's the modern wheat. I'm not talking about your kamuts and your, your um, einkorns and your emmerweets and your um, spelts. I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about modern wheat as it is today. Um, it seems to be creating this, this issue. Mm. But if you have a an addiction to gluten, then even those traditional wheats may cause you a problem as mm. well. Mm. So number one, you were probably had an, an addiction. Mm. And lettuce would never have <laughs> done no. anything for lettuce that addiction. <laughs> no, no, no. Lettuce would never have done anything. So I, I, I sometimes wonder how long does it take to break that addiction? And if you do go back to you get the taste of it again and you're back on a, a rant again and you need to do that, you need to have that wheat again. So perhaps addiction well, I think is one of the one one of the things that we need to break as well with this emotional eating. Well, I think that that's a, that's a double pronged attack because the emotion the emotion that that occurs and it's fun and it's reward and it's pain and it's all those sorts of emotions the emotion that occurs then causes the person to reach for the food they reach for the food and then the the food that they reach for creates an addiction Mm -hmm. so and calms them down and does and numbs the gut numbs the neurotransmitters in the the brain yeah 
So it's kind of like this vicious cycle because you have the emotion, then you go and eat, the food's addictive, you look at yourself, you, you don't like what you see, which then creates another emotion. And then God help us if we have an external emotion where we have a marriage breakdown or a divorce or a car accident or something external to us that compounds the fact that internally we don't like the way that we look, then we reach for the food because of the addiction that creates the addiction or re or re-step or recreates the addictive behavior. So the whole thing is this massive, this massive cycle. Um, so I mean, I actually think that the, the the food, the food, the addiction, the addiction in the food definitely needs to be broken, no question at all. Mm. But I think that the emotional leader actually has to address their emotions first because the food is what they learned. It's a learned behavior. Mm. We all we all experience emotions. We all have happy, sad, fun. We all look for rewards, you know. We all do that stuff. But the learned behavior is is reaching for food, and it's that learned behavior that actually needs to be undone before, as at the same time even. The learned behavior needs to be undone and the addiction can be addressed at the same time, which then takes food. It, it makes the food not the problem. And this is what I realized with you guys. And I think I don't even I think I even emailed you. I was mm, crying I when I emailed you. I remember you had a real breakthrough with it. Yeah. yeah. And I even I get emotional thinking about mm. it. I remember it was a real breakthrough for me two years ago when I realized I had been making food wrong purely because I didn't want to make myself wrong because if I made what I was doing wrong, then I had to deal with my emotional triggers that made me reach for the food. And it was such an it was such an epiphany because you remember like when yeah, I was first, you know, everything made me allergic, like a, a capsicum, a tomato, or eggplant, breads, everything gave me bloating and wind mm. pain and... You know, we were we were at a loss as to what to do. You know, mm. and it was at that point that I think I realised that I'd been making food a problem and making food wrong. But food wasn't the problem; I was the problem, and I it was all of my emotional triggers for everything that I'd learned to eat when there was an emotion present. That was just what I decided to do when I was really really young and you, you might even be doing that sorry can no, no, no. say something you might even begin that whole thing with our culture um as far as when a baby cries you know the breast goes straight in or the bottle goes straight in or the dummy goes straight in and then as we reward our children we reward them with treats you know, we, we give them a lolly. You know, if you win this race, you'll get this lolly. If you do that, I'll give you this treat. If you do that, you can have that. If you eat your main meal, you can have dessert. So I actually think it wow. it starts right back mm. where it's all about the mouth. It's You know, it's all about... Oral gratification. Oral gratification, definitely. <laughs> Just the way she said that. <laughs> We were getting a bit. I was actually being really serious, but it's true. It, it is about oral gratification because that was. It right. was the pause after you said it, love. It was the pregnant pause after you said it that made us all go. Did she just say that? 
every podcast, people. Every podcast. Every podcast. Anyway, back to you. But you, you're so, but you're right. It is. It is about everything goes in the mouth, and so basically, the food. You know, the food is part of that. So it's. It I, could I, be I, that re- memory of when you're a baby. I think that's part of it. I would like to add that. Just something hit me when you were talking before that we are taught how to eat. You know, we're taught whatever our parents know. We're taught that veggies are good, that meat's good, that whatever it is that their values are, we're taught. We're taught how to get up to get ready to go to school, or which then leads us into going to work. We're taught how to add numbers and to do maths and all that thing. But one thing we're not taught, I don't think it's it's made a big enough point of, is how to deal with those emotions that come yes, up. True. So you're taught, you know, when we're taught, when we're little and we're crying, often in, in this, I, I, maybe it's a fault of a parent or a mother, but the nurturing comes and goes, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, and you want to make it right. So mm. often we'll reward with a bottle or we'll give them something to pacify them and calm them down instead of to feel it, you know, to heal it, we need to feel it. And and as parents, we don't want our children to go through the same pain. And I just wonder if we could teach our children how to deal with these emotional pains or emotional issues in a positive, constructive way that they're actually okay. That having emotional highs and lows is okay. It's just how we work through it. And that's something I've learned a lot with you both, and in particular Karen, is that when these emotions come up, it's not that we bury them, get rid of them, try and not discuss them or, or face them, but it's it's actually what's causing it. And, and now I find myself, when I get that emotional feeling in my stomach, you know, something is upsetting me, it's usually my tummy that goes first, then my heart starts pounding. My thing with what I've learned with you girls is when I get that feeling, I now know, I, I say to myself, what's causing that? And what's causing that? And what's causing that? <laughs> like I, I go a little bit down the rabbit hole with myself. So I actually start to become aware in the moment of what I'm feeling, which then takes off my mind to go and eat or to go and do something. Or if I can't work it out, I've found my response to an emotional issue is to get out in the fresh deep. I've got to go for a walk. I've got to get outside. I've got to... I, I tell you, the other thing I do when I feel like I want to go and eat something I shouldn't, and I don't know if this is a good thing or not, but I'll either put a drop of peppermint oil on my on my teeth or I'll go and brush my teeth oh. with peppermint oil in it because peppermint stops you wanting to eat yeah. and especially when you brush your teeth now some people will turn around and listen to this and go oh that doesn't stop me <laughs> but, but it might be enough for some of you listening to be a little trigger to stop you going to do something well I think what you've said there is actually part of the key because when emotions are high intelligence is low mm. so when a person is experiencing an emotional an, an emotion of any kind positive or negative intelligence is low so when and particularly if there's a if there's a sad emotion or a negative emotion you you're not present to be able to think to do something other than what your habituated response actually is so having said that though the key is consciousness and presence during all periods and during all times um, when we're associating food with sorry when food is a response so consciousness is what's necessary and you've hit the nail on the head there because you rubbing peppermint oil on your teeth breaks the breaks pattern it, it yeah. interrupts the pattern the, yeah. the, the, the neurological pattern that's been set up for many many eons in the brain 
it interrupts the neurological pattern. So, I mean, I'm thinking to, to affirm what you've said there, Kim, what could be a really good help and support to somebody that is an emotional eater is to actually have a, a way or a sign with them somewhere that before you eat, rub peppermint oil on your teeth, before you eat anything, anytime, anywhere, so that you're creating a whole new habit pattern before the response of food is engaged. Mm. So you're creating something different. Even if it's dinner time, rub peppermint on your teeth. Well, I tell you what, every time you do do something like that or have a big glass of water before you eat, like, like fill up on something, you know, like put something in your tummy, if that's, you know, like maybe a glass of water is it, or putting the peppermint, what happens is all of a sudden you do not feel, or, or you're doing, like you say, something different. But for me, I don't feel so hungry if I allow myself see I believe we all overeat I I believe even sometimes I overeat and so sometimes what I've done and this what really hit me one day I was going into a meeting and I had not eaten all morning and I was actually a bit shaky but I had a beautiful big it was when I was eating bread I had a big sandwich sitting next beside me I just bought it and I raced and got the sandwich but I literally had to get into the meeting I took two bites of that sandwich went into the meeting sat there throughout the whole two-hour meeting and did not feel hungry at all. And what hit me was actually two mouthfuls was all I needed Mm. to give me fuel to get through the next two-hour meeting. Um, And that was another aha for me, was that sometimes make sure you're, you know, when you're eating, um, there is a consciousness, which is why I really have started saying a grace before I eat. And I've been doing this for years. I do it with the children Mm. so that they at least acknowledge that we're about to eat. You're not just going to sit down and shove this food into your mouth. And and let's talk about, it's a little bit like the castle, geez, Dal, what's this? What (laughs) what do you call that, Dal? Cupcakes, Dal. (laughs) Why would you go out anywhere when you can have this? Every noise. (laughs) <laughs> but it's quite beautiful. <laughs> One of the graces we say, and it's in like chocolate for women, is um, we ho- we actually hold hands at the table as well, and we'll say, "Earth, who gives to us this food, Sun, who makes it ripe and good, dear Earth, dear Sun, by you we live. Our loving thanks to you we give." And it's just, it's not religious. It's it's not specific to anything, mm-hmm. but it's relating and honouring Mother Earth for the grace of this privilege, this privilege we have to eat. And I don't think people get what a privilege it is to eat to eat food these days. So for me, yeah, when you're saying that about the peppermint, and, and for me another ritual is having a glass of water 10, 15 minutes before I eat. I, wanna, I don't want to overeat because I know that's a habit of mine is to easily overeat because it tastes so good because we eat so fast. And we get it in and we haven't even allowed it to hit the stomach and we still think we're hungry. But that day where I had the two bites of the sandwich, by the time the sandwich, those two bites had actually hit my tummy, then half an hour in I realised I'm actually not even hungry. Mm. Made me realise how little amount I need to eat. Mm. And the other... Sorry, you were always in, also engaged in something. Right. Yeah. I was doing something mm. else apart from eating. But the other thing that Or thinking me, about eating. <laughs> the other thing that hit me, and I don't know whether either of you feel this as well, is that I always thought there was breakfast, lunch and dinner, morning tea, afternoon tea and supper. Like I felt like there's this ritual. And it wasn't until I really started listening to the, to the wellness guys that Damien talks a lot about this is that why don't you just eat when you're hungry mm. Mm. fuel that's a fuel eater that, and that, that yeah. is that's a fuel eater yeah and they eat when they're hungry an emotional eater will start eating 6am in the morning I used to wake up and have a Mars bar next to the bed 
and I would the first thing in was the Mars bar, and I used to think that was just so fabulous. Oh my god! And, and then I've, mm. I've heard, also oh, heard for emotional leaders, they're continually thinking about food, like All they're the time. they're looking for their next fix and it's their the next thing. Thought. Yeah, it's the first, first thought. thought. Whereas for me, I, my first thought is. You know, I want to get up, I want to go and exercise. Um, f- food comes in before I go to work. You know, all right, I need to have that, and I know I'm going to need it um, in order to, to go on. I, I um, read a book um, a couple of years ago. It was called The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg. Uh, and Charles Duhigg was saying basically what you guys are saying, that um, we do get into a routine and we, be, and we get a habit. And there's, there's usually a cue, and the cue might be a thought for the food. Um, it's an emotion. Mm, it's an emotion. emotion yeah. Or it could yeah. be for us, it could be that we need to eat. Yeah. Um, and he had a habit of every afternoon at 3 o'clock, he would look at the clock, it was 3 o'clock, he would get up, he would go up to the cafeteria, he would buy a chocolate chip cookie, he'd sit up there eating his chocolate chip cookie, talking to everybody, and then he'd go back to work and he, he was quite satisfied. And over the years he started to gain weight and he gained about 8 kilos. And he realized it was the chocolate chip cookie that was doing it. So he, this is where he figured out the power of habit. So he realized that the cue was um, the clock. Yeah, it was three o'clock. But the reward was socializing with the, the human beings, you know. Instead of being in front of his computer, he was socializing. So he, saw, he thought, I don't need to change the reward and I don't have to change the cue, but I need to change my routine. Mm. So what he decided to do was he, he'd get the cue and instead of going up and getting the chocolate chip, he'd get up and he would go and talk to a couple of his, his friends or a couple of his um, workmates. And he realized he was satisfied by that. And over a period of time, he lost that eight kilos. Oh, wow. Mm. Good on him. Yeah. So he wrote a whole book on it. And it's it, really interesting. Like he starts with, you know, why do we brush our teeth? Mm. He, it started with advertising. It was something we didn't do back in the 19th, early part of 19th century. We actually, um, nobody brushed their teeth. But Really? Yes. Yeah, look at Karen. That's foul. But then we probably didn't have the foods that cause the bacteria yeah. that create the bad breath that make the teeth needing to be brushed because you no, would have eaten vegetables surely. or carrots. Like when you eat a carrot or an apple, your teeth can actually feel quite clean afterwards. So I imagine we would have used foods in that way. Well, basically the marketing was put on the queue, um, the routine and the reward. So uh, the reward was to have white teeth. Nobody had the white teeth. Um, and the, the routine was to brush your teeth. They probably didn't have any teeth. Yeah. Ah! <laughs> at some point. Actually, you think about it. You look back at all of those movies, those old-fashioned movies. Oh, yeah. They've only got two or three teeth at the front. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> you know, the other thing with these girls is is you're talking about the emotions and all, and, and all of that, but I find that everyone also makes excuses. There's always an excuse why they do things or why they don't do things. Is this one of those stop it moments? Yeah, I could make it then. Mm, you could. But, you know, two of the biggest go. excuses for a lot of people why they um, don't do something or do do something is, is usually time and money. And why we don't eat healthy is we don't have time or money or we don't have the education to go and learn how to do this or whatever. But I... I found for me, and perhaps as I've got older, I've got more vigilant, and particularly now teaching it, and this would be my point, if you're a parent in particular listening to this, you are actually the teacher for the younger generation, so you have to get this, otherwise you are teaching your younger generation the habit of emotional eating. So for me, it's actually about prioritising. 
I know for me to function the best in my home, for my children, my husband, my business, and the people that depend on me, I actually have to look the part, be the part, and feel the part. I can't be an unintegral with that. Is that a, is that a word? And, and you're also very organized, Kim. You know, like you're very organized and you have nothing in your kitchen that you don't want your family to eat. No, and that was another big thing, you know, because grandparents would come over and bring lollies and things like that. Now, I don't, I'm not that bad that I'll say, get that out of the house. And my brother is so naughty. Every Christmas, every Christmas, he buys my children a one kilogram bucket of m ms <laughs> He does it to annoy me and he does it to wind up the kids and he just does it because he loves to see the reaction on my face every Christmas. <laughs> we all know what it funny. is. We yeah. all know. Yeah, and they... They've got the Christmas holidays to get through this one kilogram, or maybe it's 500 grams, I don't know, it's a oh, massive it's a bucket. massive amount. Yeah, and I sit there and I go, well, if you want to eat it. Now, they don't often get through it, and often they're actually giving them away, and, and it becomes, and I'm just like, this is just so not me. And I'm wondering, is this creating a bad habit? Is this doing this? But I also have to know that my children are going to have to make their own choices and their own decisions. Mm. But Taylor said something interesting recently, and she said, Mum, you know what? When I watch adults eating badly... It actually repulses me. They should be doing it right. Now, us as kids, I think I said this either, the, I don't know where mm, I said this, but um, you know, as kids, I think it's okay that we kind of sometimes muck up a bit and we have a little naughty treat every now and again. She said, but I'm actually depending on you, and it makes me realize that you're a good mum, you know, that you don't eat the garbage, and therefore I feel like I feel safe. Mm. But she said, well, sometimes when I stay at other people's houses and I see what their parents give as a reward or that they think is right, she goes oh, mum, it really upsets me because they're not giving the right fuel. So something's going in with my kids, thankfully, and hopefully that they're going to have. But then this morning we get pancakes. I've made the most beautiful pancakes made with my own nut milk. I've put all this love into them and everything. And the one thing they want on it is ice cream. Now, it's ice cream I've made or whatever, but it's still ice cream. And so I'm kind of like going, oh, my gosh, am I sitting up? So I'm like trying to say to them, this is not a good habit. But then I'm kind of like, well, they eat so well anyway. Is homemade ice cream such a bad thing to have yeah, on pancakes? And in your homemade ice cream, you've got milk and eggs and, and sugar and, and there vanilla is a bit essence. of sugar and vanilla essence. So in my way of thinking, like, you know, we're, we have this thing that sugar's bad. Mm. And it, in, a, in a healthy, like, yeah, if it's a healthy household, there's nothing wrong with a little bit of sugar. No. It doesn't matter. When you look at breakfast cereals and then you compare it to your homemade ice creams and pancakes, I'm sorry, there is no comparison. Right. You know, there's probably more sugar in the breakfast cereal than there was in that little bit of ice cream that well, you gave them. I actually think there was more sugar in the organic yogurt, to be honest. Oh. When I looked at how much sugar was in the organic yogurt, I kind of thought yogurt, ice cream, they're fairly similar, really, when you're home making your ice yeah, cream. Yeah, exactly. And you know you've got the good ingredients. Yeah. You know, one issue that we, we haven't actually discussed is survival. Um, a lot of people um, are, are constantly hungry. Mm. And it's not about emotional eating, but they just can't be filled. And there are, the body wants to survive. No matter what, it has to survive. So if you don't give it the nutrition it needs, so let's say you're eating foods that are dull in nutrition, uh, what happens is that the body will say, please eat, please eat, and will constantly be bugging you to eat. But then you eat another packet of chips or another bit of food that's got no nutrition in it. Low-fat yogurt, low-fat milk, exactly. low-fat cheese slices. Right. The list goes on. The list goes on. It's not only low-fat, but it's low-nutrition, and there's yeah. no satiety there. Yeah. So you constantly hungry you're constantly thinking about food um and it's the body saying mm. i'm gonna get sick or i'm gonna die unless you do something 
for me. Mm. But you're not seeing, you know, back in the old days, there were no breakfast cereals and packaged foods and lean cuisine and packets of chips. You had to go out and catch yourself a, an animal or eat, get the carrots or the greens or pick the mulberries. You, you had to do it properly. And so you would get that nutrition. Mm. So that's number one. I think that's got a lot to do with mm. it too. Yeah. Because when you are a yo-yo dieter, you're only following the, the diet that's out there because you're not educated. Well, I certainly wasn't, and I know a lot of people, even in my frame of, you know, in my field of influence is still the same. They'll go on a diet and they'll still buy low-fat cheese, low-fat yogurt, low-fat champagne. You know, they'll still... <laughs> low-fat champagne? Low-fat champagne. You know, you can get a low-carb <laughs> champagne oh, low and a low-calorie champagne. Mm. And, they, you know, so that's still the mentality that if it's low-fat, then it's fine. But they're still overweight because mm. they're starving. I know that now. Mm. But I think it's got a lot to do with it. And food is the ultimate addiction. Yeah. We have to be addicted to food because it's about survival. So Oh, the exactly. And it is about, um, That's it, such a good point. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's actually one more point with that. Do you okay, want to well, hold that not, thought? You know, or I are you going to just going to ask you both on that note yeah. of, of feeling good and around people is, you know, let's think of the positiveness of, of eating food, breaking bread. You know, the, the actual sharing of food is a very big part of our social um, interaction with one another when we actually communicate and talk and there's a lot of fun associated to it but what we've learned and I look at the way you and I Cindy and, and definitely now when we all get together oh my gosh look at the three of us when we have lunch together or we go somewhere together not only are we unbelievably beside ourselves about seeing each other and how excited we are <laughs> but to sit down and actually have food that we all get really lit up about like mm. I think we get lit up more now with a health approach Approach to it than what we ever would have done in the past with sitting down and having a hot pie and, and, a, and a diet coke. Not that we ever did that, but you know what I'm saying. But I think that's a really good point, and I want to share that with people in terms of the, just for me, because I know that there are other people out there who are emotional leaders. So I want to share with them after you've given us your points, Cindy. I want to share right. how that transition or that leap of faith took place for me because it's so recent because oh, mm. I think the, since I've been doing this research I've kind of come up with a bit of a recipe but keep yeah. going. Yeah. well the other thing that is you've got the nutrition part of it but you also um, in your fat cells release a hormone called leptin mm. and leptin is the master controller of hunger um, versus satisfied um, it's the controller of your hormones it controls taste buds it controls everything so when you get about four and a half to five kilos heavier and you would do that in the summer when there was lots of fruits and lots more food around and, and your meat was um, full of saturated fats because the herds were eating more foods and they would not put it on in muscle but they would put it on in fat because it was sweeter grasses. So in the summer we used to put weight on. The hormone leptin was released by this five kilos of fat, goes into the hypothalamus, the hypothalamus then controls everything that's happening in your body. And as long as there is leptin, the body knows when not to be hungry versus to be hungry. But once you go past that five kilos of weight, and then keep going 10 kilos, 15 kilos, 20 kilos, the body becomes resistant to the leptin. And as a result of becoming resistant to the leptin, the body actually thinks you're starving. Because the only other time when leptin receptors have no leptin in them is when you have no fat on you and you're underweight. Mm. And that's when the body will say, please eat, I need food if you are going to survive and if you want to propagate, have another baby or whatever. 
So when you um, go past that limit, leptin is released, way too much leptin is released, you become resistant, the body thinks it's starving, it makes you eat again. So there's actually two reasons it will definitely make you eat. So you have to get within that, mm. that range with your weight. Once you're in there, then you've got at least a little bit of control. And once you give it nutrition, you've even got more control. And, and you know, that's... That's what I think people have to realise is that the body is always asking for food because it wants to survive and if you give it the wrong food, it's just not going to. Or if you're overweight, Mm -hmm. like severe, you know, got more than five kilos, you know, because we've never had morbid obesity. Mm -hmm. You know, there might have been a few kings that got fat but basically most people would only gain that five kilos in the summer when there was a lot of food and then lose that in the winter when there wasn't as much sweet foods and uh, and fruits so Mm. uh, people have to be aware of this so as they're going through their protocols and they're they're losing the weight and they're getting healthier and things are starting to change they have to be patient Mm. um, with this so when you're addressing not only emotional eating, we've got to also address addiction, and then we're also addressing the body's need for survival. So there's mm. a lot of things in play here. Mm. It's a complex combination, isn't it, mm. really? Um, looking at addictions, generally an addiction will be a need to fill a, fill a hole. So there's a gap, there's a hole, there's a, there's, a, there's a void that requires filling, and then we fill it with hoarding, or we fill it with drugs, or we fill it with food, and we mm. fill that that hole but you know even that hole has a and 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 it's the saddest part about humanity actually is that there's this underlying river of of self-doubt and self uh, and 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 um i'm not good enough belief that i'm not enough i'm not good enough i'm never going to be enough therefore i have to eat to be enough therefore i have to take drugs in order to numb the pain of not being enough or i have to you know hoard Stuff in order to fill my life, in order to fill this this hole. Um, so, sorry, I yeah, just no. I wrote a, actually I just wrote a note to, um, to Karen, and that's why there was a bit of a pause there because there's also the the problem with sexual abuse as a young child. You want to make yourself ugly. Oh yeah, to yeah, males to males. Yeah, and I know a lot of women Absolutely. that go through this. So they that you know like when you really like. We started this whole yeah. podcast thinking, right, you know, but when but you really enough, look another into thing it, too, oh, like yeah. in the island, in the Pacific Islands, mm. it's actually seen as a form of wealth the bigger and fatter your wife oh, gets because you, you actually can provide food for your family. So there's another whole psychological thing so around cultural, that. Cultural, cultural, cultural challenges mm. around food. And gosh, so it's have just, we solved it's just anything? A, it's, no. just a, it's just a rabbit hole, really. Isn't it is. It? It when you really, really look is. at it, but have we solved anything? Have we have well, we given them what they need? I think what we've done in this podcast, I think what we've done is we've identified and we've we've actually made it okay. Instead of you, you know, awareness is fifty percent of the battle won. Mm. So when we're aware that we eat for emotional reasons, then fifty percent of the battle is won. But if we're unaware of that, then we're running around oblivious and unconscious. And I think that that's really what today's podcast has probably done for our listeners is made them aware. And I think that, you know, to have a couple of options to to help support as you're going through the challenges. But I, And I have to say, anybody who's listening to these podcasts, you're already nearly there. Mm. Because a person who, me, a person like me and the people that I was speaking with and doing some interviews with, don't even know the name of the podcast. You know, they're not even, they're not even in the sphere of 
knowing that another option or another possibility exists outside of Jenny Craig? So perhaps with anybody who is listening to this mm. and they know somebody that's in a situation yeah. um, that they should gift on or well, what you know, ask, yeah. ask them to listen to this or put it on their phone. It's so easy to put a podcast on a phone now. Mm. You know, get their phone and say, I want you to listen to this one here mm. so that you understand maybe why, you know, you're not doing that. Oh, look, I, I know very intelligent women, very intelligent women that know um, me and um, know what I've talked about. Actually, one girl that worked for me, mm. yet I can't, no, no, no matter what I try, I can't help it. I cannot help her. I was talking to somebody about this yesterday um, because, interestingly enough, after our weekend retreat, there have been a handful of people that have called me since then to talk about their partners and their children. The biggest, mis- the, the biggest mistake that we can do is make ourselves or others wrong for eating this way, eating emotionally and not eating for fuel. We don't want to make them wrong because then that's just another emotion that's going to compound the issue. Good point. (laughs) So what we want to do is we want to make them right. We want to give them forgiveness and we want to make them right and we want to make them right about the fact that they love food. They want to be alive. They want to be around for a long time enjoying lots of foods. They want to experience their emotions wholeheartedly and throw themselves into it. They they don't push their emotions away. What they're doing is stuffing them down with food, but they're not resisting their emotions. And that's right. That's mm. you know, we want to really embrace what's right. And when we can do that, then the person is free Mm. rather than trapped in being wrong. We want to make them right so that then they're free to choose. But when we make them wrong, we're trapped and there's no freedom to choose. All there is is another negative emotion which forces us for addictive food. So ultimately, we want to try and interrupt the pattern. We want to break the cycle. We want to encourage people and encourage ourselves to be in pursuit of... um, other ways of thinking and other ways of dealing with the emotions rather than not having them at all. Other ways of dealing with the food rather than not eating at all. And I think that's where, Cindy, you've been so instrumental for me and my family because you never, and I don't know if you just did it because you were being nice to me, but you (laughs) never, you never made me wrong. You never, ever made me wrong. All you did was open my eyes so that then I was free to choose. Mm. And I chose to choose. So, you know, and since then, it's been a journey. And I, and it's a beautiful thing because for the first time in my life at 43 years old, I can actually look back now and go, you know what, I'm a different person. I see myself differently in my life and therefore my food has just naturally been a byproduct of the change that I've experienced. Mm. But I see myself differently and um, and I'm really grateful. I'm really grateful. I feel I have a lot more peace. And the food is just a natural byproduct of that. And being educated about my food, well, that just adds to my peace. Mm. You know, that just adds to my peace. To see myself losing 200 kilos or two, 200 kilos. 200 grams. She was a bit I was overweight, wasn't I? At 200 grams. Like if I can lose, if, if I drop 200 grams overnight... That to me, I think, well, geez, that's just awesome. And I wasn't even trying, 
you know, and I think that that's really cool. I think that's really cool. What was that thing you said you were going to summarise that was the aha for you or the... Mm. What was the thing you said it was around when I was talking about traditions? What yeah, was it you were going to go back to? I finished about the, the whole survival mechanism of the body to eat. Mm. Yeah. Around sharing food with people. Oh, us celebrating when we'd get together and we'd get really excited around food. And what you said oh, you got something around that. Yeah, well, because when I get excited and I'm celebrating with people with food, oftentimes I would sit at the table and I would watch how much food's left and just out of guilt I wouldn't go for the last potato or I wouldn't go for the last piece of food because I thought that would make me look like a big fat pig but for me when we would celebrate with food that was my license to eat like hell (laughs) because that was like a big celebration but the aha for me now is um, in terms of the celebration of food it's actually being very aware and being very conscious of my emotions um, and how I feel before I prepare the food or before I have the people over. So the aha for me now, and hopefully this is helpful for people listening, is to we know we can preempt our emotional responses a lot of the time. Sometimes we can't, but for the most part we can. If we're having a relationship breakdown, we can preempt our emotions when we wake up in the morning. We can preempt how we're going to be feeling. If we um, are going for a job interview, we can preempt that we may be feeling nervous prior to going for the interview. If we are just doing a normal day at work, we can preempt the boredom. You know, we can preempt how we're actually going to feel. So instead of us focusing on what food we can have, which is the first thought, which then begets the next thought and the next thought, the next thought, and then we just begin, you know, we're on that same roller coaster each day. Preempt the emotion. As soon as we open up our eyes, preempt the emotion for that day. And then figure out a way that we can deal with the emotion or be, not deal with it, there's no such thing, but be with the emotion, be present to the emotion. And then love ourselves through it. One of the biggest things you gave me, Cindy, was what was the most loving choice for me? Mm. How could I love myself best through this particular emotion? Because when emotions are high, intelligence is low. So you want to have that thought before the emotion is present. Mm. So how can I love myself best through securing a massive contract with a new client that I know I'm going to be so excited about? (laughs) How can I love myself best through that? And loving myself best through that in this particular occasion was a massage and um, spending 400 bucks on a chiropractor who was absolutely amazing. Instead of mm. me going down to the restaurant and sitting and having mango cheesecake and, you know, all the beautiful That's things. Mm. Yeah, and it was, that was easy. Mm. That was easy. And I actually felt like I'd gifted myself way more. Mm. So in terms of, of take-homes mm. for me, yes. for those people who, yep. you know, um, feel that way, it's be very conscious of your emotions. That's the very, very first step. Be very conscious of your emotional experience and focus on the feeling rather than focusing on the food. What feeling is present rather than focusing on what food you can you can digest. The other thing I would also suggest is create a ritual around your food. And Kim, you're just a legend with this. Mm. Create a ritual around eating so that when you do eat, you're very present. Don't eat in front of the television. Don't eat while you're working. Don't eat when you're not thinking. If you can't, if you have to be thinking, if you have to be doing something, that's not the time to eat. Only time to eat is when you can pull yourself away from the computer, you can pull yourself away from actually doing something other. Only eat when you um, only, only eat when you can focus on what you're eating on and be conscious of it. Mm. 
And then, you know, look for ways to interrupt your patterns, you know, um, putting the oil on your teeth before you eat. Although it's, it's not so much about hunger because although we do get hungry, but it's looking at when there's an emotional trigger, put oil on your teeth and let that be the first response because it's just the first response. If you can interrupt the first response, you've got it nailed. So it's just the first response and make it a positive one. And it even might not just be peppermint on your teeth. It could be a oh. glass of water with lemon or lemon. It could be anything. Yeah. But it could even be body boost. Oh, do you go and have a food. shower and have a, and do a body boost? Oh, oh, for me, it was go for a run or go, go for, for a run. walk. Or because if I and the other thing for me would be if I really do want to have if I know I'm going out for dinner tonight and I'll probably have a glass of champagne maybe or I'll have dessert. That'd be something nice because you don't do it all the time. Then one trigger for me is earn it. So today I make sure I go out and I do it maybe a little bit extra long run. Like I actually, I allow my body to earn that right. Um, I give myself permission to earn it. And trust me, my dessert is not some Mars bar cheesecake or a it, it is actually, I will only choose a dessert that I know is, is, is edible and good for me. Um, another thing I would say is, is we are all role models. Uh, whether you've got children or whether you're a grandparent or whether you're a, a father or whether you're a single person, people are looking at you. And in fact, in particular, your children are looking for you to be strong and disciplined. They need you to be strong and disciplined. They want you to be firm with them, even though they might want the lolly or the ice cream. You saying no is teaching them that they can't have everything they want when they want it just because they feel like it. And I think being a role model with discipline is something that your children are craving. One other point for me is everything you make or everything you're about to eat, do it with love. So if you're going to make breakfast and you're grumpy with everybody because everyone's rushing and you're making your scrambled eggs and you're going, come out here and eat your bloody breakfast. <laughs> if you're doing that, the food's going to have a very different vibrational energy to when you're, when you're digesting it, which I believe can affect the way we absorb it and the way we eliminate it. So for me, it's about making food with love. And one other point that I would love to say is, is it, you made a point about me, Cindy, is, is being organised. Around food, if you aren't organised and have a well-stocked pantry or you have beautiful food in the home or you've made a few meals in advance so that when you are busy one night you can just grab something out of the freezer, organisation is key for me for not breaking habits or getting into bad habits. It really is having an organised pantry, fridge, freezer. Mm. No, well done. And mine was education. Mm. Respect for the only body that you're ever going to have, the only vehicle you have to carry you through this life. So have utter respect for it. Try and get rid of any food addictions, and and wheat would be one thing that I always say to people to get out of because of the glutenamorphin. And the last thing is remember that the body wants to survive, and so it will do anything. It will make you eat to survive unless you are feeding it the right foods and and nutritionally sound foods. So that would be be my things. What a great podcast. Wow, I've learned so much. Gone right down a rabbit hole today. Yeah, we we did well. It'd be good for your program. I know, I know. Mm. I'm creating a new program called Slim Side Out. So it's it's um, being slim from the inside out. It's going to be interesting when that one rolls out. Oh, be brilliant. Very excited about yeah, that. I'm looking forward to that one. Okay, so hopefully you guys have enjoyed this podcast and you've learned a few tricks or two. Um, we'd love to hear your comments on our Facebook page. Go to all the W's dot fa- uh, forward slash Facebook dot com forward slash up for a chat or you can post your comments on the wellnesscouch.com forward slash up for a chat so join us here next week on up for a chat and be part of the ripple effect that's changing the world
This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Hi, Damien Christoph from 100 Not Out here. Wow, what a wellness summit we had in Melbourne. 600 people filled the Crown Conference Centre to listen to Cindy O'Meara and her Up For A Chat colleagues, David Gillespie, Ron Ehrlich, Nicole Bilgema and the Wellness Guys, of course. And guess what? We recorded every single minute of it. That's right. You can see nine world-class speakers with over seven hours of footage in the comfort of your own home. How cool is that? The best news is, until midnight Saturday the 7th, September 2013, this pack is just $147. Then it'll go to $197. So to pre-order your Wellness Summit Home Study Program for just $147, go to www.thewellnesscouch.com and click on Shop. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.